If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. A note about today's episode. There is some language that may be inappropriate for young listeners, so please consider this as you listen today. Thanks for tuning in. Direct primary care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. Direct primary care or direct specialty care is unadulterated medicine. Removing the corporate interests, such as those held by insurance companies, hospitals, and big box clinics, erases the need for unnecessary testing, treatment, referrals, seven-minute appointments, hours of paperwork, crappy care, and allows for what matters most, medical care for the patient. I am Dr. Haley Miller of Mountain States Diabetes, and this is my DPC story. Dr. Haley Miller grew up in Buffalo, Wyoming, and received her undergraduate degree in nutrition and food sciences from the University of Wyoming. After garnering her MD from the University of Washington School of Medicine, she completed two years of internal medicine residency in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and accepted a fast-track fellowship position in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. During her training, Dr. Miller participated in many aspects of research, but her true passion has always been patient care. She has given a number of talks to both patients and providers about healthcare innovation, optimizing diabetes management, insulin pump therapy, continuous glucose monitoring, insulin intensification, and weight management. A self-proclaimed diabetes nerd, Dr. Miller's professional interests stem from her own experience with type 1 diabetes, diagnosed at age 10. In her free time, she enjoys skiing, hiking, performing arts, and most outdoor activities with her husband and two children. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much. It's exciting to speak with you today. And I want to start off with where you grew up because you are a doctor who grew up in a rural town in Wyoming, in Buffalo, Wyoming. And just to give a little bit of reference there for people, it's north of I-80, west of Devil's Tower. And being a person who grew up in a rural community, in a previous interview, you had said before about how your dad's job as the town coroner really affected how you practice medicine today. And you said that your desire to go into a field where you could try and prevent people from ending up at his place was imperative to your healthcare delivery in the future. And I was wondering if you could start by telling us more about this. One of the things about growing up in a small town or living in a small town is everybody has multiple hats. So my dad, not only was he the coroner, but he also owns the funeral home and ran the ambulance. It's a lot of ways for things to go south. 
And so growing up in that kind of environment, it, I think that you can go one of two ways. One, you're interested in it and you're like, oh, I want to go into the business or two, you're deathly afraid of it and you want to do anything you can to keep from having to go there. And so I, that I fell into that latter category. But one of the things that I learned from that experience was that empathy and helping to take care of someone's loved one, helping family members cope with grieving is the process, but it also, it's not unlike taking care of folks for their health and helping to guide them through a very difficult time or a difficult diagnosis. And so it was a double-edged sword. It helped in, in a way, and it's driven a little bit by fear, but I think that's most of everything. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that fear, sometimes you don't even realize that you have a fear about something until you actually face it for the first time in medicine, especially. I remember the first time that I had to do a visit with a family, with a social worker, where everything that we were trying in the ICU was not working. And this person was going to die soon. And being a first year resident, having never had that type of discussion, I was so fearful. And so I can't imagine what your dad went through as he took on those roles and had to learn how to adapt to different situations that those roles presented to him. And so I'm sure you saw so much about life when you grew up where you did and seeing your dad do what he did. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot about how people die, which is, I mean, truthfully, it's, it is overwhelming and, and scary. And most people I know who grow up around funeral homes are afraid of a lot of stuff. When you speak about empathy, something that is very unique to you as an individual and as a physician is that you were also diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at a young age. And so I would love if you could share about how your diagnosis helped carve out your career choice in medicine and how it's impacted your practice to this day. I actually wanted to be a doctor from, I don't know, probably since I could talk. And I had already done like a bunch of, you know, you're in third grade. What do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, there are those papers, but I was diagnosed when I was in fifth grade. And truthfully, when, you know, we did the testing and the symptoms were detected, it was something where they were like, well, you might have to give shots. And because I was really interested in medicine already, I was like, sweet, that's awesome. So for me, it wasn't like this horrible life-changing end of the world kind of thing. I was excited about it. And then I got to mess around with shots. And so, you know, having that diagnosis when I was young and then growing up in a small town, limited access to care and resources and education, some of the different things that I went through as a young person, as a a college kid, it, it there are, I think, ways that could have been dealt with or ways to help navigate that that aren't available necessarily for folks who are in small or rural areas. And I, that kind of inspired me. I really went into medicine when I started medical school, not wanting to do diabetes. I wanted to do anything but that just because that was all that I had done. And so I was like, I'm going to do dermatology. That's the best. You know, you can work limited hours. And I, I was not an empathetic person as a, I was a college kid. And then I got pregnant and it didn't matter. I started connecting and decided instead of do what seemed like the smart thing to do, I did what I really loved. 
there's something about that shared experience of having a disease that makes it to where, you know, you can relate and people listen to you and it helps to confer that kind of, not respect, but almost a mutual appreciation. And it just, I'm obsessed. I can't stop reading about it. I'm like every single rotation, OBGYN, dermatology, my otolaryngology rotation, I could find something to do the presentation on or like, you know, something to do with diabetes. And so it just seemed like everything was pointing me in that direction. So that kind of drove me there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your calls for more content have not fallen on deaf ears. I am so excited to announce the My DPC Story Patreon community. Delve into exclusive full-length interviews with pioneers like Dr. Niti Kapoor, our inaugural physician guest, and get further enlightening insights from our current season's doctors, starting with Dr. Harpreet Sui. Hear our guests share even more, from their worst days to their best days and everything in between. Get access to this treasure trove of conversations and more by joining our My DPC Story community now. Check out the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash mydpcstoryfan. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mydpcstoryfan. I think that's incredible. And I'm so grateful that you have so many state licenses because I'm sure that you're impacting so many people. And just for the listeners, can you share which states you have licenses in, especially if a person doesn't know that Mountain States diabetes exists and you are out there, you know, preaching the good word about helping people with diabetes and they want to know if they can refer to you? Yes. So I, it, sometimes I forget the, some of the states, but I can tell you that I have licenses in Montana, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, Nebraska, Kansas, Alabama, Michigan, and Minnesota. I think that's it. I used to watch Animaniacs and it makes me think of their little 50 states. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. But it's, I have to look it up often when people are looking and asking for it because remembering which ones I am and not, it's uh, it's a lot. It was probably over a little bit of an overzealous kind of thing when I was first getting started, but I was just freaked out. So, but now that you're in direct pay medicine and because of the pandemic, I, I am assuming that people will find your services so invaluable. And I just want to put a note here that Dr. Miller's states where she's licensed in will be mentioned on her accompanying blog. So if you visit mydpcstory.com, you can look at that list again. Now, when you were in practice prior to opening Mountain States Diabetes, how did you come to learn about the direct primary care movement or did you hear about direct specialty care first? I heard about direct primary care. So I, my practice has always been a little bit unique in that I have done a combination of primary care and um, specialty care because I've, I've lived in some small towns. So you have to, you can't do just diabetes in a tiny town, but it's also folks with diabetes. They're like, for me living with type one diabetes, I don't really need to see the doctor very often, but 
growing up, I need to see the diabetes doctor a lot more frequently. It's stupid to go to two different doctors, one who can do most of your medical stuff and the other one that can do like a throat swab. I mean, that's, those are things that I think I, I had to train in internal medicine. I can do primary care. It's stupid for me to not provide those kind of services, especially when all of the other kind of disease processes interact with one another. And that's something that no one ever appreciates. I've always done this sort of model. So I was giving a talk for diabetes at the Wyoming Medical Society at their annual meeting in Jackson. And there was a doctor there from Powell who was opening his practice. He had switched over and he, I think, was on the board at the same time that I was for the Montana Medical Association. So he gave this talk about switching his practice and it was like, wow, that's radical and crazy, but also very interesting. And it seemed, I mean, it kind of, I was still in the midst of being an employed physician and couldn't imagine doing something like this, but it was eye-opening. And Phil Askew actually gave a talk there as well. And he was, I think he was shortly out of his residency and it was like, dude, you're so young. How can you have all this figured out so far? But it was one of those mind-blowing events for me. And then I, you know, you, you go along and you think, oh, I can make this work. I can handle this employment or I can do this and I, I don't need to do that. But I kept coming back to it, kept coming back to it. And it, it just started that one of those like ideas, kind of like inception where you just, it kind of grows and grows. And fortunately, the third time I had the balls to, to go through with it. And that said, what was your employed physician experience like? prior to making that decision to switch your practice over? I love taking care of patients and I do, I love to interact with folks and I like to please people. So I go to the ends of the earth for my patients, but I can describe employment as a never ending paradox, soul sucking, life draining, almost push me to the edge of the edge. And I was going to either do something the right way or I was going to leave medicine forever. The way that the system is set up right now with the incentivization and the RVU models, we are pushed and pushed to see more people do more things. And really it's upselling everything. That's all we do is upsell. And we have to, in order for us to get the RVUs. And that's not in the patient's best interest. The doctors who are the most successful in at least primary care, the ones that can see 45 patients a day and seriously, 45 patients a day. Do you know how many minutes that is? It sucks. And so I didn't like being a part of that. Patients would ask about their bill and I don't know anything about the bill, but sometimes they'd say, well, I I got a bill for $600 and I'm like, what? I mean, I, I had no idea what they were charging. And even though my outcomes were always good, And it's, I think that the strategy for my care worked. I was never good enough for any of the employers. It was like, well, you need to see more people. You need to do more. And it's just, and you have someone who doesn't have a degree in anything, or they're just like a basic level person who knows nothing about healthcare. Who's telling you, oh, you need to do this. And this is how healthcare is run. I don't know. I hated it. And it it probably would have killed me truthfully. And again, I want to draw attention to the fact that you are a physician who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and who has so many licenses in so many states and now the ability to make such an even bigger impact. And I'm so proud of you. 
I, I don't like saying that because you did this yourself, but I feel so much happiness and pride for you because you decided to, to make the leap and you also decided to take back your medicine and to take back how you wanted to do your medicine. And I, and I'm sure every listener who's hearing you speak and share your story is just so happy that you did not leave medicine. And it is so devastating that we go through so many years of training and that is even something on our decision plate. You know, do we leave medicine or do we continue in fee-for-service or do we do something else? But I'm so grateful that you continued on. I am too. I Thank you. I, I had some fairly serious burnout and we're supposed to be helping people and we're forced to be doing things that aren't, I don't think ethical in the employed practices where I was. And that I'm glad that I did this. I've never been happier. I've worked really hard, but man, my appointment's two hours. So yeah, I talked to a lady today and she was like, I'd like to get in this time. And I was like, how about Thursday? She was like, what? Yeah, I can see you Thursday. It's just nice to give the patients that kind of access. Every time I answer the phone, folks are surprised, but it's also providing them the kind of care that they need. And that makes me feel good and less unhappy. So that's, it's all about me, right? I love it. Let me ask you this. Do you miss anything in terms of the support that was provided as an employed physician now that you are a solo practitioner? Yes. Like right now, my practice has grown so quickly that it, it was just me. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do everything from home and it'll work. And I can do all the st- stuff. And it turns out it's hard to do all that and have your phone ringing off the hook. So I miss having a call center and they, they all know how to schedule appointments. I miss having staff that know to room the patients and, and that some of those little administrative things that I never had to do. I My nurses would do the prior offs for me. And that's been one of those things where it's like, oh, I guess this is how we do it. It's all of those little administrative hassles. Um, but I guess the health insurance probably is the other one. But it all kind of depends on whether or not it's prolonging your life. And I don't think that employment was prolonging mine. I, I feel that those things are things that we can learn and mm-hmm. or we can hire somebody to help with. Yeah. And by doing something like hiring somebody or learning to do those tasks or a part of those tasks, you still have the freedom to do the medicine you want to do. And make it to and- where that they don't get burnout either. I mean, that's the thing. It's one of the biggest challenges with healthcare is that if you are using MAs, you go through them very frequently because they all get burnout and, you know, they're treated just as poorly as the doctors are, if not worse. And all of us are just on this horrible treadmill. And I don't know, I think that whenever I end up hiring and paying full price for someone, the goal is to be groovy and happy and we're happy to work. I just said groovy on your podcast that no one (laughs) in my family will be able to hear that without, let's edit that out. (laughs) That's fine. I was going to say that we could leave it in because what I was going to say was, well, Dr. Vance Lassie quoted Sir Mix a lot. So I think you're in good company. That's good. All right. That's good. Previously in the Facebook groups, you've mentioned that you were cautious and interested in observing for a while. And like you just shared, it took three times to really get to the point where you decided to change your practice over. So I want to ask about that space of being 
interested and being a little cautious and being observant of the movement for a while before jumping in. What was that experience like for you? And what kinds of information were you looking for as you learned more about direct care? For me as a lurker, and I was a lurker for a long time, I'm like, oh, this looks awesome. After a while, everybody says the same thing. And truthfully, reading the boards, I was like, everybody kind of is saying the same thing and they all say it's so wonderful. You you start to wonder, oh my gosh, is it just, is this some sort of sales pitch? And you know, you go to school, you go to residency, you go to fellowship, you have to interview, you have to know how every kind of organization is run. It's like, everything is great and everything's perfect and everything's wonderful. Well, I mean, you don't go somewhere and they're like, this place sucks. So don't come here. So at the start, it was just, I don't know. Are these people selling something or not? And and so being able to see real people and talking to real people who have these sorts of insecurities, but also I know that I'm great at diabetes, but I'm not a business person and I'm not a, I don't know if I'm an entrepreneur and I come up with lots of ideas, but I don't, I don't know anything about that. And that kind of obstacle has always been there. And really once you dissect it, instead of just following the threads, once I started searching, being able to read other people ask the exact same question that I'd been thinking about and worrying about, and they'd been asking those same questions and very expressing those similar insecurities for the last several years made it to where it's like, oh yeah, these people are all actually, they're, they're real people. And they all have had these kind of thoughts and it's normal for me to feel worried about this. And they're all doctors too. And most of them don't have MBAs and most of them don't know anything about accounting or business administration, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that the more time I spent on that reading through and seeing the stuff that folks had been concerned about and knowing more about their backstories, it actually helped me feel more comfortable and confident in going forward and moved me more forward from that lurking and reading. If you were to go on to a, oh, people who do those Ironman triathlon, they have, I bet they have a Facebook group. People who are like intense, maybe top 10% Ironmans, whatever. I mean, I don't even know what's involved in that, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot of exercise. So those exercises who are really intense, like they're all kind of in that same thing. Now, me as someone who dabbles in hiking, if I were to join the Ironman exercise Facebook group, they're all talking about this and that and how awesome it is. It's, it's, I don't know if I'm one of those people or not. I don't know. I, are these people my people? Are they people like me? Are they not? And I find that I could relate a lot more to the people on the, you know, they seemed a lot more like me than the Ironman group. So that's why I went with it. I'm sure there are some Ironman competitors uh, amongst the, the DPC. Yeah. But I, good for you. Out. You will never find me there. I can tell you. <laughs> but I, I love that. And I'm glad that you shared that was your experience and, and the thoughts you were having as you were exploring the DPC space, because I, I feel that those words are probably going to be relatable to more than one person. Yeah. And so this seemed like a real nice solution. And so truthfully, if I have to work 30 hours a week or 80 hours a week, I want to be doing something that I feel good about instead of something that I don't feel good about. I don't think we get burnout because we don't like doing what we do. I think we get burnout because the system is set up for us to get burnout. I was going to plug medicine forward. It's a different group of other strong doctors around you who are 
also burn out and everybody's looking for different solutions to help. And there are a couple of champions for DPC on there. But I think that most people, truthfully, on that forum or in that group are also, they're just like, oh, that sounds so scary. I could never do it. And then being part of this other group that's full of other physicians who are also burnt out, but are like, oh, that seems really overwhelming. And I don't know if I could do that. Knowing that those guys are overwhelmed and freaked out about it made me feel better about being freaked out about it moving forward. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I think about how if I had the ability to have the time that I want to have with patients, that I might not have ever been so excited about the direct primary care movement. Yep. So I can totally relate to that. And, and really truthfully now, when people are like, what, what if I don't, I'm scared to go into it. And when I first started lurking that people would be like, don't hesitate, just do it. It's totally worth it. And they always say that. And I was like, I don't know, that seems But now, literally, whenever anyone's like, I don't know, I don't, someone will post the same thing that I would have done a year ago. The first thing I can say is, trust me, man, it is totally worth it. And there's a reason why you hear that, that kind of phrase resonating on those boards. It's, it is liberating. And I don't know, I have never worked so hard and been so like, I'm like the antithesis of burnout right now. And that's awesome. I'm working my butt off, but it's, it's great. I love it. It's exciting. That's so awesome to hear. I love that. Now, I want to go into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of how you made your jump into your clinic. Did you face any non-compete issues and other challenges when you made your jump? There's always a non-compete kind of question for folks, I think. I spoke with several different attorneys and everybody in says, oh, in Montana, that doesn't count because there is a shortage of physicians in every, in most every specialty here. And so you can work around it fairly easily. And so non-compete was never that big of a deal. Part of it was timing, picking the right day, having everything together to be able to function smoothly. When I first started doing it, I'd be like, oh, I'll get a website and then I'll just do medical care. But man, there is so much more to it. And as I kind of developed and built it, I realized that it takes a lot more than just what we're doing, talking and me giving medical advice. I'm not just like an advisor. I have to be a doctor. And so that that took a little bit of time, but it's I'm glad that I gave myself that window because if I would have gone directly from being employed to opening my practice the next day, I don't think that I could have done it as I couldn't have done it just because it's, it's a lot to learn and to get set up and to, and to kind of prepare for. And I still felt completely unprepared the first week that I was open completely. It was just like a disaster, completely disorganized. And couldn't figure, didn't know how to use my EMR. And it's, you know, it's like, oh, I guess now we do this. There are lots of those things that are automated in clinics where you're employed that, you know, I didn't really appreciate. I would give everybody the advice to do some practice runs before you open. That's one of the lessons that I wish that I had learned beforehand, but I didn't. But do some practice runs with, even if it's family or random people or patients, just to say, hey, will you do a dummy run for me so that we can see how my workflow works? Getting everything in place for the planning and preparation was one thing, but then opening and building 
is the next thing. And for me, I have to like the biggest challenge is making sure that folks know that they can reach me because I was at this employed place. And when you leave, especially if you're in a, a I don't know, city or whatever, middle-sized town, I don't know if this is because of my town or because of the location, but your previous employer doesn't want anybody to know where you are. And so it, I might as well have been just erased from the earth. If they could have any way, they would just be like, oh, she doesn't exist anymore. She's not there. I, I had pharmacists say, oh, she's not there anymore. I was like, dude, I'm standing right here. I am here and I'm practicing. It's like, oh, huh, that's interesting. I think that having some like a resource that folks can go to, to find, or at least if they search hard enough, they can find you. And so they don't end up at your house or calling your personal cell phone or friending you on Facebook. I love my Facebook friends, but also there are lots of different creative ways people reach out and I'm glad that they did. But if you have a a means for them to reach you where it's not them not having to get so creative, it makes it a little bit easier on your personal front. And did you overcome that by creating HaleyMillerMD.com? Yeah, that's, it was, that was the landing page for folks to find out that, no, I didn't leave. I'm not going anywhere. I'm working on this practice. I promise I'm, I'll be here. Dr. Vance Lassie shared how he had a patient who he had delivered her children. And after he left, a similar situation happened to him. The way that it was presented to patients was that he had left the area. And then he ran into this patient and she asked him, oh, where have you been? And he said, I never left. And one thing I think about is something that another physician had shared is that as they were preparing to open their DPC, they did things like take screenshots of their reviews from their employer because they assumed that those reviews would be deleted instantly when they gave their notice that they were going to leave. And that doctor is planning on using those comments that were made about their care on their website as they open a DPC so that there are testimonials ready to go from their actual care that they gave because they do it. That's, that's, that's great advice. I wish I would have heard that before that, that there is a pearl that is, cause that's one of the things that I had a hard time with when I was first getting started. And I still, I, I'm don't like to, I don't want to inconvenience people or ask them for something that makes it them to feel weird. And so I'm terrible at asking people for testimonials or reviews. And I know that I need them on my website. So I asked two people and then it's, but I'm, that's something that I like, it takes me a lot of me to say, Hey, do you want to write? That's just not something I I can ask folks to do very well, but man, I would give anything to have saved a bunch of those beforehand. Cause that's, it would be money to have that written out. I could say what people, I think they said about me or what they told me, but I can't, I didn't copy any of it. So I don't know. Yeah. It's definitely something for people to consider, especially if they're working in an employed position. Yeah. That's money. I've been very surprised at the, at the links that have been taken to, or measures that have been taken in an effort to make it seem like I'm nowhere. I don't exist. And it's weird and bizarre because no one does diabetes. Most doctors are just like, Oh yeah, please take my diabetes patients. And, but it's just that whole system. It's that if you're not part of the monster, there's something wrong with you. I think. When you created HaleyMillerMD.com, how did you disperse that information or how did you get 
to patients the fact that your landing page existed? Uh, truthfully, I just threw it out there so that people could find me if they Googled me because I knew that folks would be looking for me again and looking for me. I'm not a big deal, but I am kind of a big deal in diabetes in this region. So I knew that folks would be like, where is she? Whatever. And so I just wanted to create it to be where it was like, okay, they could go. And I thought about putting an ad in the newspaper, but some people don't read the newspaper. And since everybody Googles everything, I just put it to where it was just like a catch-all, almost like a, a spider's web. So it's like, okay, I'm throwing it out there so folks can find me. Like I had it, you could subscribe and I'll let you know when my practice opens. And then I linked it to my new website when I finally um, had that one developed so that folks at least knew where to go. Because at the very beginning, I'd never created a website. I had no idea how to do any of it. It was just basically thinking of the words that I thought people would look for when they looked for me. And it was my name. And something that can be used as a tip is if you do have a name that you wish to use in a dot-com situation, you could potentially go on Google domains and for $12 buy every version of your name that could possibly... Come out of a person's brain and have all of those linked to the one that actually is your name. So that right. way it can capture more people. Yeah. I have, I have become a little bit of a, a domain hoarder. So I, I have purchased a bunch of different domains that are iterations of, and so that folks can't steal it, like buy it and then charge me thousands of dollars for the name or the website name either. It's just, yeah, 12 bucks. And sometimes it's so toward the end of the year, they were all on sale. So you could get them for like six bucks and it was like, sweet, this is amazing. I'm getting a, a deal, but it's those little wins. <laughs> My lawyer's Apollonia Udell from yeah. Colorado. I was like, Apollonia, I bought 18 domains last night. And she's like, that is genius. It's money. It actually, it made a, a huge, I think it made a huge difference for me. Cause I believe that there's another mountain States diabetes that may be opened around the same time that I did, but they're based on the East coast. And so it's just a matter of getting the name first for your website. But my patients don't come to me because I'm the cheapest care. Like I have patients with Medicaid who pay the, the subscription, I mean, or the membership, they come because I give them two hours. I work for them non like, and I do anything I can to make sure that their health um, care is like, like I'm meeting their needs. It's not because I'm the cheapest. That's not what I want to be known for anyway. I'm providing affordable care that's worth its value. That's, I think that's one of the hardest things. Cause I, I truthfully, if I could, I'd just give everything away for free and every single thing, but you have to value your time and you don't go, you don't go to the haircut to get your haircut you're paying for that service and, and everybody expects it and you go and you pay and it's like, okay, this is how it works. And I think the more frequently you have that conversation with people, cause it's awkward and it's weird. And it's not something we as doctors are really trained to do, but the more frequently I have that conversation, the easier it is for me to not just sell it, but I'm explaining it to folks to where I don't feel like I'm, I'm not pulling anything over on them. I'm not doing a fast one and I'm not selling it, but I'm just explaining it. And this is how it works. And most of the time they're like, wow, that is impressive. I am. That is so cool. Cause most people, especially at least with diabetes have been screwed by the way that the healthcare system is set up right now. One of the things that I, I found challenging going through it is that there are a bunch of 
there are some really great helpful groups, but there's also some folks who are definitely, if you like, so there's the DPC docs and then the DPC, whatever the other board is, there's some sharks in there who are like, I'm going to take your money. One of the ladies who is always referenced on the, at least that other board is, it's like 4,000 bucks a month. And I was like, seriously. And when I was looking to get started and and figuring out, I was so overwhelmed. I was like, I'm going to pay someone to do this. I'll have someone who's a consultant who can teach me this because I don't know what I'm doing. Are you accepting any insurances like Medicare or are you a hybrid? I'm currently doing hybrid with Medicare only. So I take only Medicare part B um, technically. So that's my technical thing. I have not actually not fully credentialed yet. So I think I'm just uh, right now I'm just giving freebies to a bunch of folks because the Medicare patients were hurt by COVID, like the lack of access to care. On your website, you currently have a pop-up that says you don't take commercial insurance. And I wanted to ask, how did you decide to put this pop-up on your website? And also do patients give you any feedback that they thought that meant you don't take any insurance whatsoever? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to Spruce Health for supporting the MyDPC Story podcast. The ways we communicate have changed dramatically over the past decades, but technology and tools in healthcare have not kept pace. Patients want more access and digital convenience, as well as the ability to text their care teams. Care teams are inundated with more communication and rising expectations, but are still using tools and technology stuck in prior decades. Spruce Health created a solution for the tech-forward DPC practice by creating a communication product designed to serve both the patient and the doctor through intuitive HIPAA-compliant workflows, tagging, scheduled messages, and triage templates ready for use, whether you're on your phone or in the exam room. New users get 20% off for the first 12 months of a paid plan with code MARYAL20. That's M-A-R-Y-A-L-2-0. So check out Spruce Health today at sprucehealth.com or check out the link in the show notes. So the reason, yes. So the reason I have that pop up is that the first week or two that I, I saw patients after I opened, I had a bunch of people who were gobsmacked at the time of the visit that I didn't take insurance and they didn't know. And it felt like I had it all over the website. So I was like, I got to create this pop-up because I can't go through this kind of, okay, so are you, you're not going to pay me. And, and so I created the pop-up. So it was like, they had to see it. And then the second part is that yes, many patients, particularly my Medicare patients, are confused by it. And so then I end up talking to them about it afterwards. So they'll say, oh, wait, I don't know if if I have that or not. I wanted to ask now with regards to your model of care, what happens if a patient is referred to you from a different state other than Montana, where you physically are? So for those folks, I will only offer the diabetes care for, because I like them to have access. If they need blood pressure managed and those sorts of things, I can do it. But I have a lot of patients in a bunch of different states already, and I want to be able to continue to provide their care, but I can't do everything from a remote distance. If patients are referred to me, 
my kind of, it's, I don't have it written anywhere. I don't sign an agreement, but I have this deal with the doctors who refer that I will only see the person for diabetes. I won't accept them as a primary care unless they have a full discussion with the, the patient has to go back and have a full discussion with the physician. Because then since I do this specialty, I want people to feel comfortable sending their patients my way. And I don't get referrals if, if I take their patients as primary as well. It's just kind of an understanding that we have locally. And most people out of state are self-referred. And going back to you taking Medicare, but not commercial insurances, what happens with the billing with regards to a Medicare patient after they see you? Are you doing the coding? Do you have someone doing the coding and, or do you use like a super bill? Good question. So yes. So I'm, I know how to write a note and I have, I know what the codes should be in diabetes. We don't do procedures. So that it, there are three codes that I use always. And since I'm not like I'm not fully credentialed. I started the process and then I petered off. I'm not yet doing anything. I have worked. I know a gal who's going to do the billing for me, but I have to be credentialed and I don't actually know what it's going to look like. So my understanding is that I can credential and it will be a retroactive credentialing that then I can start charging for the folks who I've seen in the last month or two months or three months. But I keep little notes on the Medicare patients so that I know what to bill and then we're just going to see if it works. I didn't know if folks would come at first. It's hard to know. Yeah. Now, what about for people who are seeing you and using Medicare? What does your package pricing look like? And how did you determine your pricing? So I have a one-time $99 enrollment fee. And that was an arbitrary number that seemed like... It wasn't too expensive and it wasn't too cheap. And then my minimum package for most of the service is $75. And so if you do basic primary care, it's $75 or basic diabetes. And that just means I'm doing only diabetes. For folks who want me to do both diabetes and primary care, it's $129. And then for a premium package, it's $149. And the premium package is there just because... I think it was part of a marketing book that I read that you needed to have something that people aspired for. And so I was like, okay, we'll do that. I have two weight loss packages and it's mainly because I have a fairly, it's a straightforward weight loss clinic and it takes less time and it makes it accessible to folks. And those are 59 and 79. And it's just because those visits are tend to be a lot shorter once we're established. And then many of those folks end up wanting me to be primary care anyway. So I want it to be an option. Many of the primary care folks, many of the diabetes folks, diabetes usually includes the weight loss anyway, but if someone wants both, I don't want to make it unattainable. So it's like an add-on package. I do give a discount for folks if they have more than one family member. Since I don't do kids, like I only do diabetes for kids and there aren't many people with a bunch of little kids in their family with diabetes who need to see me. I give a discount of 10% if they are two people because it's two $75 people. And I'm doing a little bit of a discounted pricing for the Medicare or Medicaid people because it gives them access and it's less, it's hard to explain, but it's the right thing to do. Awesome. And for the listeners, do you recall what book that was where it talked about having something, having a price point where people aspire to? I think it was the one page marketing plan. So 
One of the things that I love about physicians in the DPC space is I feel that a lot of DPC doctors have this amazing sense of creativity. And you especially are a person who loves DIY projects. And I wanted to ask you um, about your DIY-ness, including how you even DIY'd your own insulin pump. DIYing is my thing. So, so closed loop insulin pumping is using a continuous glucose monitor that tests the blood sugar. And then the pump responds to those blood sugars to adjust it, increasing it and decreasing it. So living with diabetes, like everybody with diabetes goes through these burnout phases where they're like, ah, screw it. I don't want to do it. Or they get tired and they don't do things as well. And it's constant. Like you're constantly having to look and do things, but if we can make diabetes management a lot easier then it makes it to where it's much easier to do it more consistently. And so I had this patient and and I'm, I've always been really into diabetes tech, but this patient asked me, she'd read it on some sort of a Facebook page and said, what do you think of this? And so I was like, let me look up, look at it. And I was like, it doesn't look terrible. And let me see if I can do it just to see if it's safe first. Cause most of the stuff that I and give patients advice. I'm not going to tell them to do something that I don't think is feasible or reasonable. So we were going to Cheyenne for Cheyenne frontier days for like our family vacation. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. And went on the website and read the, how to do it and set up this app on my, just on my phone in about two hours. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool. And I spent the whole time while we were in Cheyenne, when we weren't at the rodeo, like messing around with it, but this was just a demo app. I had to get this little piece that then it connected to, but reading more and more about it. One of the challenges for diabetes technology is that every advancement or iteration of an insulin pump has to go through the FDA process and insulin pumps are these big things and they always have these four-year warranties. And so a company doesn't want to launch something like really fancy every year because then people are constantly waiting to buy their pump until the next best thing comes out. And so this group of people was like, dude, you guys are not keeping up with everything. Why aren't we doing it? And they had these, I'm sure that there's some math people and engineering people and healthcare people who are all helping to create these algorithms, but they developed these algorithms to where it's predicting the insulin curve and it increases and decreases, but their outcomes are, it's dramatically better than any of the other kind of outcomes that have been able to be achieved. And so it was like, dude, this is incredible. And we can fine tune and tailor and, and make everything a lot more um, aggressive when we need it to be and less aggressive when we don't need it to be. It's very liberating to know that I'm not stuck with the old pump and that I have to wait for my next warranty to be up to get the new incentive or have to pay a lot more. I can upload, like I've messed around and tried a bunch of different branches. And so you can constantly, it's constantly upgrading and updating. And we have the ability then to upgrade and make things as the latest technology that's available based on the latest um, evidence and literature. So it's uh, as soon as glucagon is stable and can be infused, there'll be an algorithm for that, algorithms for co-infusing someone. It's insane what that kind of group think has done. And truthfully, I think that whole movement has been the reason that diabetes technology has advanced as quickly as it has in the last three years, because they have this pressure and they're just, you can have an old calculator or you can have your iPhone, which does the same thing as the old calculator, but 
they so they in order to, to keep up, they had to really step up their game. And that's been exciting. That's a long answer, but it's incredible. Best thing I've ever done for diabetes. I just want to put a parallel to that you are doing all of that without an administrator or somebody who never even got a medical degree or knows anything about medicine telling you you can or can't do that. And also I want to draw a parallel to how DPC as a community is able to harness tech that is not going to be seen in a fee-for-service clinic for years, if at all, because of the access to care that a DPC doctor can provide and the value that a DPC doctor can bring to their patients without administrative burdens. Right. It's incredible. The thing is before I opened and when I was an employed doctor, I did this on the side for free. I didn't charge people. It was like, I can't do this as a doctor, but I can do it as a friend with diabetes. And so this is what we can do. And I can show you what I did and I can give you some troubleshooting. This is how like to help people set it up because it, it's nice to have someone who's there who can help with it, especially since I've done it a bunch, but I don't have to worry about them being like what you're doing. And that's not really part of our goals or our missions. No, dude, this is um, incredible. It's a pioneering and driving diabetes technology and diabetes advancement. And most everything is based on evidence. It's just that the evidence is not translated into really commercial things for folks with type one diabetes. It's not a priority for most of the funding. So we don't see as much progression in those kinds of things anyway. So it's, we'll do, we'll experiment based on some smaller studies that then we can see. I've, I have given myself prophylactic doses of glucagon a couple of times in the last, before I go for a hike, just to see if I can keep from eating five packets of fruit snacks when I'm hiking. And diet exercise is a real challenge for folks with type one diabetes, but this, uh, just because the insulin sensitivity changes so much and it's, it's challenging for everybody. So the prophylactic glucagon actually is probably going to be the best strategy, but it's cool that we can do it now. And I don't have anybody telling me that I didn't document X or Y in my mouth. <laughs> and again, I'm just going to put here, go to my dpcstory.com and look up the licenses that Dr. Miller holds so that you can see if your patients can be referred to Dr. Miller for diabetes. Now, when we talk about the DIY space, your logo and name, how did those happen? And did you DIY those? Yeah, the the name I came up with, but man, I'm telling you what, that was like probably the biggest hurdle I had to overcome getting started was coming up with a name. And it took me months to where my family, my friends were like, dude, pick a friggin' name and move on. Just, you got to just move on. Looking for a logo. I tried to make my own logo several times and one of the posts was like, I just go to Fiverr and paid three people $5 and they gave me them. And I was like, that's money. It's only 20 bucks. I can go and do that. So I did it. And that's where my logo came from. I was, I am very pleased with it. The gal who did it was um, very responsive and changed it to the colors that I needed to incorporate this universal symbol for diabetes. And it, I, it was like, that was the best piece of advice that I've ever, that I have received for marketing. And I'm, I don't know, man, I'm probably at the top of Fiverr's list right now for different things that I've paid for through there, because it's, it does, it's made a huge difference. The guy who 
Like I created my website and did all of that, but then I had a professional guy go through and do all the stuff to, to make it look good. And he did an incredible job and I didn't pay five or $10,000. I only paid, I didn't pay very much for it, but that was the contract. And if you've never been on Fiverr, I definitely would suggest checking it out because they even have stuff now where people will design a chat bot for you. They have people who will look at your business model. They have people who will, like you said, design your website. And it's definitely a resource that a lot of people use. Yeah. My slogan I got from one of those kind of Fiverr sources. I'm actually having a video commercial made right now for that, but like one of my attempts for marketing. My brochure was made by a Fiverr person. It's been like, and I seriously go, it's almost like an addiction. I go on there looking at things that, what can I do next? It's, oh, maybe I need someone to design some clothes for me. It's, it can get a little bit ridiculous, but it also seems just incredibly cool. And it's neat. I love that idea of global outsourcing. My logo and something else were made by people in Pakistan and they did they were online and responding to my questions at all, all the time. And it, I don't know, it's been a good thing. I would like to have a fiber link on my website because I like it so much. So Haley, you are using Servo as your EMR. And I wanted to ask, do you have any tips or tricks about Servo that you found are helpful in your practice? I think I, I am someone who doesn't want to do what everybody else is doing. I interviewed every single place and went through each of them. Serbo seemed to have the best reviews. Once you have all the pieces in place, really, literally, it makes it a lot easier. And so I don't think charting is the easiest thing in the world, but I don't think it's the worst. And every time I make a bunch of stuff that I can use in my notes, it makes it a lot faster. And so I think I didn't actually build anything in advance like I thought I was going to. And that is one of the downfalls. So if you're using Serbo, go through and create all these chart parts and figure out, watch the videos, go through a training like you'd have to do for your other EMRs. Because just because you're paying for it doesn't mean that you could just be like, oh, I'll figure it out. There is a, a learning curve with everything. I actually think it's really intuitive, but there are trainings for a reason. And I wish I would have paid better attention to them and put more time into it instead of just thinking, I'm good at computers, I can figure it out. And that led to, I think, a little bit more chaos in my clinic when I first started. But having, I think it would be great if we created, if we had a repository that we could share with each other as far as like dot phrases or macros or quick texts that are like, this is, these are what we use because it, we go through and do this in every EMR and it takes forever. And I always find people who have advice that I like, They it's written better. And so having that, if you have an EMR and you're using a different one right now, and you have a bunch of macros, go through, copy them down and save them and email them to your personal email, which is what I've done every job transition that I've made, but it's, they lose some of their integrity as, as time goes on. And so you have to work on that as well. I think it's a decent deal. I don't like the interface for the scheduling, but the people at Serbo are incredibly responsive. And so I just have to send an email and the gal gets back and has it all figured out within an hour. So it's, that's also excellent, but tips and tricks, it's just planning and training. It's not rocket science, but it's, 
not easy to learn the first day if you haven't done anything with it. Now, with regards to the nuts and bolts of your practice, I'd like to ask you some comparisons and if you can share about why you feel a certain way about a comparison. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to start off with staff versus no staff. I um, think at the beginning, start off with no staff because then you understand everything that happens and how everything works and you're not dependent on anyone and it grows organically. Eventually you have to have staff, but personally, I think that it helps to have a better understanding of how the business is run at the beginning. How about accounting program or accountant? I think both. I think you have to have a way to keep your details and it doesn't go into a spreadsheet like an Excel file as easily as you might think. So I have QuickBooks and then I have an accountant technically. No, I do, but I just, I don't, they don't work with me regularly. So I, I would say accounting software, they, they do stuff like taxes. How about virtual assistant versus no VA? I'm a pro VA person. I just hired my first one, but I'm super stoked about it. And I'm incredibly impressed with her. And I'm excited to have to train her on Wednesday. I'm thinking it's going to make my practice a lot easier for me to manage. So I'm stoked. Especially with you having so many state licenses and patients yeah. from over. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Answering service versus no answering service. It's a tricky one. So I think at the beginning, no answering service because it's, I mean, they charge an arm and a leg. So it's like a dollar per call. And if you have a bunch of people calling, then I, I mean, that adds up quickly. And so at the beginning, you need to figure out your own answering way. I think having a tiered phone tree is a lot easier to get started. But once you get really busy, answering service is probably necessary. My virtual assistant lives in the Philippines. And so I, and I don't want to be an asshole and make her answer phones when it's three in the morning there. <laughs> so I'm only going to have her answer the phones from eight till 10. And then the rest of them will either be phone tree or I'm, I'm shopping for another one. But I think answering a phone service or an answering service has actually made my life a little bit easier just because the phone ringing all the time drives me nuts. How about marketing strategy or no marketing strategy? I think you have to have one according to the one page marketing plan. I read the book or listened to it. I'm not a good example of that. I, I would wish that I would have been better at following through with creating my own. And there's always tomorrow. I just want to point that out because oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely can just as we, we all pull from our experiences and mm -hmm. fee for service, we can always change and yeah. pivot. Yeah. It's a fun, like, that's a fun weekend to like, listen to that and create your little plan. Like I had everything, I, I had it all lined up, but I do think having a strategy is smart and sticking to it's probably smarter. How about bartering for services or not? Oh, my favorite. So I love this idea. I've only been open for six weeks, but I tell you what, I have been trying like a mad woman to get someone to barter with me like crazy. And so I asked this question on the board and also I've asked a bunch of different people, dentists do it all the freaking time. And so I was just like, I'm just going to throw this out there, but they have in my town, they have this bartering, like it's a company that helps 
for you to trade a cash value of your service with someone else's. And they have a bunch of different people who contract. And I don't know, maybe that's something every place has, but it's, I'm meeting with that gal tomorrow, but I love the idea. It's almost like that whole community and we're all together and I'm giving you, I'd give anything if someone would just pay me in fresh eggs. That's my dream for payment from someone, just in case patients are listening. I'd love some fresh eggs and huckleberries. Like that's money, but that's, yes, I love it. Just because knowing that you have two boys, I, I just think of the flats of eggs that you must have purchased throughout their lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's my thing is eggs. So it's a really it's eggs would be amazing, but it's and my husband won't let me have chicken. So that's the other reason that eggs would be so good. But yeah, I like the idea of bartering because, you know, it's, it gives people a currency that they might not otherwise have either. Thank you so much for, for going through those. Yeah. I want to ask, if you were talking to others who are currently in fever service specialty care or those who are looking to branch into DPC or direct specialty care, what would you advise them as they're exploring this space as you did before opening your own practice? I think I would tell them that everybody's insecure at the beginning. There are some really impressive people on the boards, and, but we're all pretty impressive. Like we all went to school it takes a lot to get to where we've been. And so I think underselling yourself, it, it just, it all it does is pre- present these obstacles. But I'll tell you what, I mean, I'm, I am the cliche that I looked at and I was like, I don't know, man, all these people are saying the same thing. It seems like they're all drinking some sort of weird Kool-Aid. Man, life is so much better on this other side. I can't even tell you. I, I joined this burnout group last year and I still go because I like the people who are on it and I like to talk to them, whatever, but I'm not burnt out anymore at all. It's, I feel fulfilled in my job. I am excited. I feel like I'm uh, being innovative and making healthcare advance in a, a direction it should go. And I'm helping to fight the fight against the system that is crushing us. It's killing medicine. It's killing physicians. And uh, they can always text me or message me if they want me to give them a list of the insecurities that I have or had before I joined. I had two full, fully registered business names in the last two years. So telediabetes was one. And then what was the other one? I had another one that I had, I was like, I'm going to start, but then I was like, Oh, I'm too scared. I can't do it. And I think that everybody always says it, but go for it, man. I mean, it's, I have no regrets and I'm a naturally anxious person. So that's saying something. What is the best way for others to reach out to you if they want to take the conversation further? So uh, the Facebook messaging seems to work. I think that's probably the easiest. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been just so fun. I'm, I'm, thanks for this. It was easy and you're a great hostess. Thank you so much. Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Rebecca Behrens of Vita Family Medicine in Houston, Texas. A reminder here that on June 9th, Dr. Lauren Hetty of Direct Doctors in Rhode Island will be our inaugural fireside chat guest. She will be answering listener questions in this live event about practicing for seven years as a micropractice DPC doctor. Check out the events page on our website to learn more and register for this free event. If you'd like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends too. 
For more information on this episode and much more, please visit mydpcstory.com. Also, for the latest in DPC news, check out dpcnews.com. Until next week, this is Marielle Conception.